Hello. Good break. So so. Did you see my chapter? I haven't looked at. I haven't read it yet, but I'm thrilled to have it. Oh, I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. Yeah, it was busy. How's South Carolina? It's good. We went four and zero. So. All right. Plus, it was very cold and rainy for a lot of it, but warmer than here, so. Yep. Did you go anywhere? Uh, to the ICA. Oh, oh, yeah, how was it? It was great. Good. They have a permanent thing now, like a room with a bunch of screens and a bunch of uh, musicians in different rooms in the house. Uh huh. And they all have headsets, they can hear each other, and they're all in rooms in the same house at the same time, but they're playing the same oh, wow. song, but in different rooms. Oh, that's cool. And you can walk around and kind of hear it. Each speaker is playing each. Oh, that's great. That's great. Did you go anywhere? Um, yeah, I visited a friend in New Jersey and then we like, went into New York City, watched Sleep No More, which was like. Oh, experience. did you like it? Yes. <laughs> I want to go watch it like six more times. You have, to, if you, you have to figure out where to be when. Yeah, there's like 21 people, so if you follow three for each time, like, right. you watch it seven times, then you'll get the whole then thing. Then you get all of them. You have to watch the show seven times. Yeah, I only saw, I saw when they did it here. Um, they did it here first. Yeah. And So that was at the McKittrick, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know where the hotel gets its name? The Is McKittrick Hotel? Right. Sorry? There's like... Yeah, no, I don't think same. so. No, the hotel in Alfred Hitchcock's movie Vertigo, where uh, Jimmy Stewart chases down um, Madeline slash Judith, um, is the McKittrick Hotel. So I think that's where they got the name. They wanted this uh, this weird, spooky hotel Are you name. Like well, no, that's at the end. Um, but before that. When she's in a fugue state, um, he finds her in the. He sees her sitting in the window of this hotel, and he comes in, and the woman, the woman behind the desk, says, uh, "There's no one in that room." And then he goes up, and she's gone. So it's a spooky moment, but it's the McKittrick Hotel. How's, how's your vacation? It's good. Did you go anywhere? Um, I was home, and then I went to DC to visit my sister's dog. And then they came back here. <laughs> I hope your sister's dog appreciated the trip. Well, they just adopted her, and she's really cute. Oh, yeah. that's cool. And were you here, or did you go anywhere? Yeah, international student bubble. Yeah. So I stayed here the whole break. But my mind traveled. I watched a lot of Pulp Fiction. Uh, Quentin Tarantino. Uh-huh. I watched Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill 1 and 2. Oh, that's I so love good. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. And um, I took an IQ test, like at a psychiatrist office. So yeah, I'm excited to know how that's gonna end up. <laughs> and uh, I wrote and I read Murakami's Kafka on the show. Oh, did you like it? I really like it. It's really surreal. Yeah. It's really surreal. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Cool. And you were here. Yes, not reading. So speaking of reading, is, was your hand up or no? Um, so we're slightly behind, but not nearly as behind as we would usually be at this point. So that's good. <laughs> um, we should, we have this week and next week on Blake, and we have um, 
the book um, we have America and the book of yours and and then the then Milton an epic uh, which is the hardest of the things we'll read not as hard as Blake gets but the hardest of the things we'll read so just um, try to have read both uh, the book of yours and, and America for Wednesday so that we can get to Milton on Monday part of <laughs> you're, you're, you're looking scandalized and shocked I'm That you're going to do the reading, that or that we're going to cover it. Oh, why not? Um, <laughs> I think it's more that what you're that after spending a lot of time, kind of entering into Blake and Blake's way of thinking and his personality or or point of view or whatever. Hi, how's your break? It was good. How was yours? It was okay. Did you go anywhere? I just went home. Home to New York. Okay. Well, I didn't know you were from New York. Yeah. Where? Oh, maybe um, I did. Westchester. It's like near the city. Yeah. No. Oh, really? And is there like a river? Starsdale. Maybe the Hudson. Are you from Starsdale? Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> I'm glad you heard of that. <laughs> I feel like all these towns are just unknown, like hamlets or whatever. <laughs> Anyone north of there, yeah. Yeah, they're as unknown as Hamlet is. <laughs> no, I went to school with lots of kids from Scarsdale. Uh, I went to school in the Bronx. Maybe you've heard of it. It's a borough. There's a city. Oh, uh, you're yeah. from the Bronx? No, wow. I'm from Manhattan, which is a different borough. Yeah, I know. Manhattan? Yeah. Really? Like you grew up in New York? Yes. Wow. I want to live there after I That's like my wildest dream. Yeah, that's a good place to live. <laughs> So, yeah, it's, it's right across the river from Brooklyn. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> I know that. I'm, I'm aware. Okay, anyhow. So, your... The Songs of Innocence and Experience are, Blake, obviously, at his most accessible. And then he wrote these very, very forbidding later prophetic works well some of them are not later but the, and the book of Thel I think is reasonably accessible some parts of the marriage of heaven and hell are accessible I mean I think that it's all ultimately you, you, reading it you may think if I read this carefully enough and paid enough attention to the footnotes I would follow what was going on was that your experience? so actually doing that is something else but knowing that you could in a pinch is helpful then you get to the prophetic books like America and the Book of Urizen and um, a whole lot of others, the uh, Visions of the Daughters of Albion, and you are in a baffling new mythological landscape. And you get a few mythological figures in the Book of Thel and in the uh, Marriage of Heaven and Hell, but you get a whole lot of mythological figures in the later books including, as I mentioned before, Urizen and Lotz and Ahania and, and Orc, especially, various other figures. And you figure out who they are in a way, the way you figure out cultures that are not your own, and you put them together slowly, but it's not as though an ideal reader... There are a lot of books that are written for ideal readers, that is, readers who have the background to know what all the illusions are <clears throat> and what, what the work is about. So if you read James Joyce's Ulysses, for example, 
you're not getting a whole lot of it, but you assume that if you knew all the public facts or if you had, I don't know, an internet or something and everything were hyperlinked, you could get links to public facts about all the things that Joyce is acting as though his readers would know. And that's how, that's how we learn cultures anyhow. You go to a new culture, you don't know your way around, but you're with people who do know their way around, and you slowly put things together. And I think that's true even for a whole lot of difficult literature, is that there is an idea that there's extraneous and external knowledge that if you had it, you could orient yourself with respect to this. But Blake doesn't really work that way. That is, he introduces figures as though they're well-known figures, that he can mention Rintra, and it's just like mentioning Zeus or something like that. But it's not just like mentioning Zeus, because no one has ever heard of Rintra when Blake mentions him, or Eurizen, or Orc. And what that then means is that you're in a very, very baffling world. And what happens after you read a lot of Blake is the world becomes somewhat less baffling. I, I don't think there's anyone who is completely unbaffled by it. But what you feel is that the disorientation should be like science fiction disorientation. That is, that you're going into a world in which there are a lot of strange but also really powerful and compelling figures and powerful and compelling situations and powerful and compelling drama and the figures, the characters say amazing things and you may have trouble figuring out the relationship of those things to each other but they slowly become things that you find compelling and directing your thought in interesting ways. So I think you might feel that way a little bit about The Marriage of Heaven and Hell already, but what I'm saying is when you read The Book of Eurizen and America and the epic Milton, read it, I mean read every word, but just know that this is like a first reading and that some of it may be compelling enough that you'll want to go back to it, or there may be other reasons that you'll want to go back to it, or you may just want to go back to it right away, but there may be reasons that you'll want to go back to it, and it will take on more and more life as you do, and it's a good thing. And then also after that you'll find Wordsworth and Coleridge easy, which is not what most people think about them until they get to them through life. But... So what did you guys think of The Marriage of Heaven and Hell? I thought winter was winter. Was winter? Yeah. Because he roars and it's winter here? Okay. I guess I liked some of the biblical imagery about like walking in the valley of, of death. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I just thought the image, imagery was really beautiful, but I just didn't understand it. Okay. But yeah, that was fine. Yeah, so it's not like there's much of a plot summary you can give, but there's some plot summary, which is that there's a speaker who is 
I mean, there first there's there's that opening poem. Then there's a speaker who describes things that he's learned and meets some really major figures, meets Ezekiel, meets Isaiah, meets devils, meets angels, has conversations with all of them. Part of the background of this is the is a tradition, or not, a tradition might be the wrong word, but a set of mystical works where people like Jacob Bem and um, Emanuel Swedenborg have described their own conversations with supernatural figures and what they learned about the truth of the mystical world. And Blake is both in that tradition and a little bit suspicious of it. And the suspicion is partly that he doesn't think that it would be the case that there would be certain privileged people who are treated as though they're greater than everyone else. Blake is very, very much a leveler, a Democrat, a person who regards all human beings as potentially prophets and not sheep who have to be led by some very special people. So one thing that Blake, I mean, I think you can see this from the Songs of Innocence and the Experience, is that Blake is not a believer in in different in in the idea that that certain people are realer, deeper, more spiritual than others. There are people who become evil, who suppress and turn away out of greed, but there's no one who's who isn't deserving. As a human being, there isn't a, there isn't a spiritual elite. Let's put it that way. Blake doesn't believe in a spiritual elite. He believes that everything that is revealed to his narrators or his characters that's a revelation that could go to anyone, and that's I think an important thing to understand about his attitudes towards, towards people like Swedenborg. So he says of Swedenborg that Swedenborg thought he was the first person to ever break a net. That is, that Swedenborg was the first person to actually get a truth that the rest of us were simply incapable of getting for ourselves. And for Blake, it's, no, everyone is capable of it. And there, however, there is oppression that is preventing us from getting there. So that oppression, what's confusing about the marriage of heaven and hell a little bit is to decide what he means by Satan and what he means by Jehovah and what he means by Messiah. And those are words that come from a biblical tradition. Um, We know who Satan is in Paradise Lost. We know who Messiah is in Paradise Lost. The question is, are those the correct terms from Blake's point of view for those figures. And what's confusing about it is when you talk about Paradise Lost, you will say things like Satan is the hero of Paradise Lost. That's one of the things that we discussed. In Blake, it might turn out that you wouldn't say that 
But the reason you wouldn't say it is that the figure named Satan isn't who Blake means by Satan. The figure named God is who Blake means by Satan. And then Satan would be evil in Blake's reading of Paradise Lost because in Blake's reading, I'm, I'm now simplifying way too much, but because in Blake's reading of Paradise Lost, if Satan means the evil figure and if the evil figure is God, then Satan is evil. So it's not that Milton's Satan is evil. It's that the figure who goes against Milton's Satan, who isn't really Satan at all, but the figure who goes against him, is evil. Does that make sense? I, I feel like I'm trying to clarify it, but I'm making it yet more confusing. But the, a way to think about it is, so how many people know the book of Job? A little. So what happens in the book of Job, or the way it starts, is that there is... God is feeling pretty good about himself and Satan comes as one of the members of God's court and God says, where have you been? And he says, I've been all over the world walking up and down on it. And um, meaning by that, that the world is a pretty bad place and has free reign for Satan to do what he wants. And God says, yeah, but you can't go any, everywhere. There's Job, who's really a great guy, and he's an earthling. He lives on earth, so don't tell me that earth is all a terrible place. After all, there's my servant Job. And Satan says, well, he's your servant now because you treat him so well, but if you were to torture and mangle him and his family and his life, he wouldn't like you so much. So God says, okay, go ahead and do that. Let's see what happens. Just don't kill him. I'm, again, put, putting together a couple of episodes. So that Satan is not a good Satan on anyone's understanding of it. That is not, that Satan is not the figure that Blake means to combine with Milton's Satan. So a way to <coughs> orient yourself is to say, Here's a clearly evil figure in the Bible, the sadistic, nasty, wants to, wants to diminish and deprecate all spiritual beings and treat the world of spiritual beings as a world of greediness and, and self-servingness. And that figure is the Satan of the book of Job. So that, we, that is the figure that we can understand as evil. Then that figure is in Paradise Lost, the figure known as not Satan, but Messiah. So that figure in Paradise Lost is the figure who goes against Satan and defeats him in the war in heaven, goes against Milton's Satan and defeats him. So the true Satan, that is someone who's really satanic, really no good, is the Satan of the book of Job. Yeah? Actually, I would argue that he's not satanic and he's not evil. Okay. <clears throat> well, I don't know, it may be like irrelevant, but like his target is not Job. His target is God. Isn't that an argument with Job? And yeah, like... And he's in an argument with God, and Job just kind of is caught in the crossfire, I feel. 
because it reminds, I forgot this show I was watching, but they had a lawyer. It was like a, a, a court, a trial of a very like, bad man. And then the lawyer who was representing the really bad man was this really good like lawyer lady. And then when the guy who was representing the, like, the opposite, he was like, why are you defending him? Like, everybody knows that, like, he's an asshole and like, whatnot. And then she said that, well, it's evil's job to, like, bring out its own evil. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing this because I want the truth to come out. Mm -hmm. So if I am a really good lawyer for this bad man, you're supposed to be an even better lawyer. So that like people will be convinced of his guilt. Yeah. And I think even against a really good yeah, defense. Even, yeah. Even even against a really good defense. And yeah. I feel like that's kind of the same case because God, God, I mean, the devil is like you're just chilling here, thinking that you're the best ever. But look, your plan or your planet is like going to shit basically. <laughs> and then say like, no, it's not. I got like one good person, and then oh, let me see what I can do with that one person. So yeah, from that perspective, I don't think that's even important. Okay, so that, that's a nice reading of it. Yeah. It seems like you're suggesting that it is playing the devil's advocate. Yeah. So to speak. Well, like, yeah. 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 Because I feel like Satan's main, in all of like the literature, he's ha he has a bone to pick with God. Like, why are you, why do we have to follow everything like you tell us? And why are you yeah, so I feel like it's not, it's okay to kind of question, I don't know if I'm becoming a Satanist, but it's satanic, but yeah, I mean, I sympathize with him. Yeah. That's my point. Okay, so, and that makes sense if you, that especially makes sense mm -hmm. if you are identifying him with the Satan of Paradise Lost. Uh -huh. That is, if you have, if your idea of Satan is something like Milton's, and then Satan appears in the book of Job, this is how you would defend that character in the book of Job. So, but Blake is, yeah, man. Also, God is not great in Job. No. You shouldn't like God after reading that. And it's weird that it's in the Bible at all. Yeah. If you're supposed to worship God after that. Yeah. Well, the middle part of the book, I mean, when God finally speaks in the book of Job, it's pretty great. It's also, it's also but it's, unsatisfying. Well, the thing to remember is that that's actually a different text, that the book of Job is two different sources jammed together. But the, it's where God speaks most. It's like he speaks more in the book of Job than in the rest of the Bible combined. Yeah. And but all he says is, you'll never know. Yeah, but, you, but the things you'll never know are pretty amazing. But okay, we, we, we're, not, we're not litigating the book of Job. Yeah. Sorry, so you were saying that the, the Satan in the book of Job is the equivalent of Messiah. That's what Blake says. Oh, so Blake says that Satan in the book of Job is the equivalent is Messiah of Messiah in Paradise in Lost. Paradise. Okay. And Messiah is the son. So that we the didn't get son, to. Like the the son. Son, no, the son of God. Oh, I, the oh right. Son. Okay, obviously, yeah. 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 <laughs> no, this is what's confusing about it because what you have is Blake saying Satan is the Messiah is Satan in the book of Job. And so if you think that what we are learning is that the Satan in the book of Job is actually a good guy, the way we might learn that Satan is the hero of paradise lost, which makes him a good guy, then 
you would take that to mean so the Satan, you you would read it a little bit like Tafar is reading it, which is that the Satan in the Book of Job is actually Messiah, and that's actually a good thing. But what Blake means is that Messiah is actually Satan, and this and Blake is taking it that the Satan in the Book of Job is a particularly nasty figure. The I just want to say Tafar though that the your reading is something very close to The Master and Margarita. Do you know that novel? So it's, the, it's one of the great 20th century Russian novels by uh, Mikhail Bulgakov. And it's just wonderful. Very strange. The, but Master, and the, the Master and Margarita, oh. who turn out both to be minor characters in the novel. But that's <laughs> the name of the novel, The Master and Margarita. Has anyone read it or heard of it? It's, people love it. When they read it, it's the kind of novel that that has minor cults around about it because it's so interesting and so so strange and so good. So a very very strange, twentieth century Russian novel, not published until after Stalin's death, but I think written in the thirties, but not published till the sixties. Yeah, but Stalin actually liked this guy. Um, he was one of the few people. People were surprised that Stalin didn't have him killed because he was the kind of person that Stalin usually had killed. But Stalin actually liked him and protected him, but didn't read The Master and Margarita, and it's not clear what he would have thought about it. But Satan is one of the... Satan and Christ are two of the main characters, although most of it takes place in the 20th century. Anyhow, it's a great novel. And would... I think you, you especially would like it, just given your way of, of looking at this. However, for Blake, just to orient ourselves, Jehovah, good. So that's the first thing to know. So, Who is Jehovah? So Jehovah is the true God, okay. and he is, in Paradise Lost, he's the figure known as Satan. Oh, so, sorry. So Blake is saying, Paradise lost, Satan is dead. Yes. So that's why he says that the reason that Milton wrote in, um, I quoted this for you before, but it's in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. In Fetters. In Fetters, yeah. Do you have the page? Mm -hmm. 71. In Fetters, when he wrote the angels and the God, and at liberty, when the devils in hell, because he was a true poet. Of the right. So that's the crucial thing. And but the devil there means Jehovah. So does that mean Jehovah is the true God, or does it mean that the devil is the true Jehovah? And part of it is just that he he Blake. Yeah, so let's just go to the, the page before. Those who restrain desire, so this is after the devil gives... All right, let's just stop, start at the top of page 70. The voice of the devil. This is plate four, if you're looking at the plates. So all Bibles or sacred codes have been the causes of the following errors, says the devil. But Blake is essentially agreeing with the devil here. So, again, what's, what's puzzling about this is that you might think, oh, if the devil is saying it, then it's wrong. But, in fact, the idea is if the devil is saying it, it's probably right. 
So, all Bibles or sacred codes have been the causes of the following errors. One, first error, that man has two real existing principles, vidi licet, a body and a soul. So that's one error, to think that the body and soul are separate from each other. Two, that energy called evil is alone from the body, and that reason called good is alone from the soul. So what would energy mean there? Desire. Yeah, something like desire, longing, an impulse to do something, the the will, sorry? Feeling. Feeling, will, or willed feeling, or felt will, the sense of aspiration, maybe aspiration towards transcendence, but also sexual aspiration. Um, aspiration. It's, it's, it's everything that has to do with human desire when that desire is unchecked. That, according to all Bibles or sacred codes, is erroneously said to be evil and to come from the body. So energy, so this is an error, which means that energy is not evil, and it's not alone from the body, and that reason, called good, is alone from the soul, so that means that reason is not good, and it doesn't only come from the soul. So what does he mean by reason? He means turning the world into an object of scientific rationality. He means making everything mechanical. So it's one of the things we were looking at in All Religions Are One and There Is No Natural Religion. It's turning the universe into a mill following its laws. And we read those little quatrains on Voltaire and Rousseau and the sands upon the Red Sea shore. And Voltaire and Rousseau stand for reason there the atoms of Democritus, Newton's particles of light, are sands upon the Red Sea shore where Israel's tents do shine so bright. So Newton's particles of light, figuring out the laws of motion, the, atom, the atomic theory of matter, all of that is, is reducing things to stem-like matrices without the true spiritual energy that transcends all of those things. So that's an error, that energy called evil is alone from the body and that reason called good is alone from the soul. And three, that God will torment man in eternity for following his energies. So the devil says all of those things are taught by religion and all of those things are errors. So by religion, he essentially means Christianity, but he does mean any religion which is parallel to, based on, or some avatar of Christianity. And then the devil goes on to say, but the following contraries to these are true. So contrary is a very interesting word in Blake, and it's not quite the same thing as negation, and Blake doesn't like the idea of negation. He, he uses the word contrary precisely because it doesn't mean the same thing as negation. 
he will say later on, opposition is true friendship. So the idea of a contrary is that you can ha- you have a kind of both and situation that the contrary shows both sides of an issue and shows not only that the issue has two sides but that what creates the issue is somehow the interaction of those two sides and the force with which they are contraries to each other. Yeah, it's it is, but without without synthesis for Blake. But the idea again is that the that contra that contrariness and energy go together. That is that there's in the same way that energy is a kind of push towards or push against something. The idea of contraries is that people is that things is that ideas is that attitudes are pushing towards or pushing against each other. So here are the contraries. Man has no body distinct from his soul, for that called body is a portion of soul discerned by the five senses, the chief inlets of soul in this age. So we are whole beings. We're not body and soul separate, which is the Cartesian idea. I think, therefore, I am, and my body is not part of me, but something outside of me but rather we belong wholly to the world and there is no body distinct from the soul, but the body is something that the soul discerns and it's a limited discernment of the self that the soul has. So the soul discerns itself in a limited way and that limitation is the appearance of the physical body as something outside of us. Energy is the only life and is from the body. And reason is the bound or outward circumference of energy. So energy is life. Now he's not saying here reason is death. He's saying that reason is when energy reaches its, its farthest reach, its farthest extension, then what you have is reason. And reason, therefore, can be a contrary to energy without being its opposite, without being its negation. So, so it's like an extension of energy when energy fails? Yeah, he's, think, he's thinking here a little bit. It's not when energy fails. It's that if you think of energy and reason as something like content and form. So there's a standard philosophical question, which is, what's the difference between content and form? What's the difference between substance and the form of that substance? And the idea is that you can't take them apart. We can't have the idea of form without something that is formed. And we can't have the idea of substance without having some idea of its shape. Of its, of its, of where it is, of where its boundaries are, and one way to think about this is a dialectical way, which is that substance and form, each is an aspect of the other. We can distinguish between them intellectually. We know the difference between. In Plato, this sometimes comes up as um, an easy way to think about it 
is color versus shape. So you can't think of color without somehow also giving a boundary to the color you're thinking of. You know, just think of red, and you'll think of a red patch of some sort. And it's not that your brain will be flooded with red, it's that there'll be a little bit of red, which means there's some boundaries to that red. So you can't think of color without thinking of its boundaries, and you can't think of boundaries without thinking of what it is that's bounded by those boundaries. So those two things, that's an old philosophical idea, that, that substance and form or content and form or color and form, all of those, they're separate, they're, they're intellectually separate, but each can only be thought with the other. And what Blake is doing is turning that into energy and reason. That energy and reason are depend on each other and they're both present. And, and reason is the form of energy, but energy is what it's the form of. And therefore, energy is crucial rather than the negation of reason. So reason is turned into something good when it is the manifestation of the shape of energy, let's say. And energy is itself what it is because it does manifest itself and therefore manifests itself through thought, through reason. But if you try to be too abstract, which is to think of reason without energy, that's when you get the, the bloodless reason that religions are pushing, the desireless, the, the driveless reason, the inhuman reason, and demands for inhuman reason that religion is pushing. It loses everything spiritual about it. So energy is what can turn reason into something spiritual. And therefore, Number three, the, the final truth, the final contrary that the devil articulates is energy is eternal delight. And so that's definitely good. And it makes sense. The very idea of eternal delight means somehow there has to be the opposite of stagnation, which means there has to be energy. Energy is eternal delight. Those who restrain desire do so because theirs is weak enough to be restrained. And the restrainer or reason usurps its place and governs the unwilling. So you could say reason should be, as David Hume famously said, reason is and properly should be the slave of passion. So the reason for reason is that it allows passion to express itself. That's what Hume says. Reason is a tool for our feeling, our emotion, our minds or souls or psyches, and the feeling, passion, and emotion that are in our minds and souls and psyches. Here, what we get is those who restrain desire do so because theirs is weak enough to be restrained, and the restrainer of desire or reason usurps its place and governs the unwilling. And being restrained, it by degrees becomes passive till it is only the shadow of desire. So 
put this in Freudian terms, too much sexual repression will not eventuate in the breaking through of what's repressed, but in the withering away of what's repressed. So energy, if you were to put this in psychoanalytic terms, energy would be unconscious energy, would be what comes, what we really want, what comes from the depth of the soul, and reason would be the principle of repression. And if it works too well, then desire becomes passive till it is only the shadow of desire. Um, it's worth noticing that the it there, I'm taking the it to mean desire, but grammatically the it means reason. And being restrained, it by degrees becomes passive. The antecedent to it is the restrainer or reason. But we know that it's the re that if reason is the restrainer, it's not the restraint. Except in a way it is, because energy and reason properly are aspects of each other. So when reason restrains desire, it's restraining itself and becoming passive. And so reason then becomes the shadow of desire. It's not that desire, it's clearly desire becomes the shadow of desire, but it's also reason becomes the shadow of desire which means that it's completely evacuated of energy. Then the history of this is written in Paradise Lost. So there you go. What I've just said the devil says, you can read about in greater detail in Paradise Lost. The history of this is written in Paradise Lost, and the governor or reason is called Messiah. Okay, so there, I hope you can orange yourself, which is reason is bad, especially reason that is strong enough to restrain desire. That is a bad thing. Paradise Lost tells the story, and the governor or reason in Paradise Lost, this bad entity that restrains desire, is called Messiah in Paradise Lost. And the original archangel or possessor of the command of the heavenly host is called the devil or Satan and his children are called sin and death. So the true archangel, the original, which for Blake is a very important word, the original before corruption sets in, before original energy is suppressed. The original archangel or possessor of the command of the heavenly host is called the devil or Satan in Paradise Lost. And his children are called sin and death in Paradise Lost. What, what's the um, status of sin and death for Blake? Um, like, as I could see, especially like some religious sins you'd obviously embrace as not being sins. Right. Um, is, would death similarly be a good thing for him? Yeah. <coughs> um, that's why the burning boy is in the grave, right? In the book of Thel. That is that death is not... Death is... could be, in certain contexts, is the 
name that the repressors give to the region of freedom. And so they say, that's not freedom, that's death. So it's a name rather than, one way to think about it is as a name rather than a truth. So it's not that finding eternal rest and dying is certainly not what Blake is after. It's that people call it death when, in fact, it's access to the freedom from the veils of horror and freedom from the suppression of religion. Mm-hmm. However, that, that's, I'm simplifying too much by saying that. Yeah. But here it's that they call it sin and death, but it isn't sin and death. In other words, part of it is that, as, as he's about to say, that writing in fetters when writing Paradise Lost, that Milton himself was taken in by this a little bit. So that the characters of sin and death, as you recall from the end of book two of Paradise Lost, at least the character of death, not so clear about the character of sin, but the character of death at the end of book two of Paradise Lost is a pretty vile character, not a character that Blake would approve of. But what Blake is saying is that Milton had to make him vile, had to degrade him, had to give you a picture of death to say this is what happens when you go against Messiah or God in Paradise Lost because he couldn't afford to allow himself to know the truth, which is that it wasn't really death and this wasn't really sin. So the picture of sin and death that you get in Paradise Lost is a distorted picture. Because I, I'll read um, just these two lines that this is rhyming with for me in Europe, 101 in our edition. But 101? I, yeah. But I can just read it real quick. Um, uh, so it's these lies that are going to be told to the human race. Go tell the human race that women's love is sin. Um, mm-hmm. Right on the and that an eternal life awaits the worms of 60 winters. Um, so I'm kind of, he seems to say that, so like, mm-hmm. women's love is sin, so sin isn't actually bad. But he also seems to say that like this idea of an afterlife uh, is fake, is like a, is a lie. Yeah. Uh, that, so again, it's, What Blake thinks about an afterlife, it can be hard to say, but because part of what's hard about Blake is to know how much is in some sense allegorical and how much, how much is meant literally. But that's partly because he doesn't think that... It's like, it's like the looking at the sun and seeing a, a disc in shape a little like a guinea versus seeing a host of angels crying, holy, holy, holy. And one way to think about it is to think that, and I quoted you that that last letter that Blake wrote about I've been, <laughs> I've been, you know, dear sir, I've been very old and very near the fates, of, um, the gates of death, but not in the real man, the imagination which liveth forever. 
So in what sense does it live forever? Well, clearly nothing in Blake is literal. That is, that you should never understand Blake to be speaking literal language and thinking that they'll just be living forever as in you'll look at your watch and you'll be alive and you'll look at the calendar a year later and you'll still be alive and you'll look at the calendar a hundred years later and you'll still be alive and so on. So, But if that's not what living forever means, what does living forever mean for Blake? And it means something like, and it's a general romantic, this is what makes Blake a romantic poet, and you know, I think it's worth wondering what makes Blake a romantic poet. And there are a lot of answers you can give to that. And one answer would be something like leftist revolutionary politics. And another answer would be um, very great self-analysis and the idea that doing such self-analysis analyzing what it means to be a soul in the world from your own capacity to do that analysis is is what it means to be a soul in the world. That is, that thinking about the strangeness of being a, a subject, being a soul, is the vocation of the soul. Not solving that problem, but confronting that problem is the vocation of the soul. And another thing, another way that you could call Blake a romantic is to say that, like the romantics, he revered Milton for his revolutionary energies rather than for his alleged claims to be justifying the religious order or religious doctrine. So in all of those, Blake is like most or all of the other romantics. And what those things have in common is, the, is also a sense of not privileging the future when thinking about time. That is, not doing, thinking about experience as immediate, thinking about experience as the thing that's happening to you right now. And all experience, you could say, in one way or another, gets you have to pay for it. But the fact that the payment is in the future, and the future payment as a whole is that you'll die, the fact that the payment is in the future is not a reason not to value the present. And the fact that the greatest thing that you can do is know that you're going to die and still and take that as an affirmative rather than as negative knowledge. That is that knowing that you're going to die and still being in an affirmative mode is a genuine affirmation in which it can only be if you're affirmative in the face of death. So in some sense, that's what all the romantics 
do will say, at least in some places in their writing, they will make affirmations not only in the face of death, but they will see death as giving value to those affirmations. So the death, rather than being the enemy to all affirmation, becomes the condition for affirmation. Does that make sense to people? Yeah. Is that why I almost feel like Kulik is kind of very concerned with suffering that's happening now as something that's going to happen later, like with the chimney sweepers, if the yeah. suffering is happening to them right now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that, so the opposite of that, not the contrary, but the actual opposite, you're exactly right, is that you suffer now, but you'll get an eternal reward, so it's okay. And that idea that what's promised is not a present experience, but some promise of a future experience, that's the idea that Blake's against. That, he thinks, is falsifying. So the idea would be that experience is always only the experience of the moment. That's the nature of experience, is that the, it's the experience of the now, of the present moment. And therefore, the fact that experience is finite, because you die, finite in that sense, means that the present moment really is the present moment. If you live forever, then there would be nothing about the present moment that made it present beyond pure happenstance and pure chance. That is, yeah, now happens to be now, but tomorrow will be tomorrow, and it's all pretty much the same. But the fact is it's not all pretty much the same, because all of it is, is present but gone forever, at every moment, and that's because of death. And therefore, the affirmation of the present rather than of the future, rather than of some time which is not ours, but the affirmation of the present in favor of an affirmation of the present which is ours, which is the right now, that for Blake is, you know, to see, to see um, infinity in a grain of sand and eternity in an hour. Um, that is, that it, that's what it means to make of the now everything, which is, which is what the romantics do at their most affirmative. Yeah? I have two questions. <clears throat> so the first one is like, so is it a reductive view of the romanticist that like, I guess you get the classic rock star? Mm-hmm. Like, well, you know where the doors got there? Yeah. Where? Like Jim, is it? Jim Morrison, yeah, but do you know where we're, yeah, if the doors, we, we, if, if the doors of perception were cleansed, uh-huh. we would see infinity. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it's from the marriage of heaven and hell. Wow. Oh, I just got that. Oh, cool. Because I, I watched this YouTube video about, like, a long line of romanticists from, like, Jesus to Thomas Chatterton, to like Jim Morrison, to like, what's his name, Jimi Hendrix, uh-huh. to like Amy Winehouse, uh-huh. and it was like, yeah, this, but I, I think, yes, it was like a reductive idea, because it's like, romanticists are artists who die, who are not afraid to die for their art, Okay. or yeah. like, who don't fear death. 
Yeah. Anyway, and I thought it was like reductive. Like there should be more to romanticism than. Yeah. No, there is, and it's partly that the there's the introspective part. But those are these things are all connected. Is the point that the introspective part is the sense of the immensity of what will be snuffed out by death, and the and it gives you a greater sense of that immensity. It's that the ephemerality becomes a strange kind of gain and not only a loss. The capacity to lose is the game. Um, and then the second one was like, because you touched on how like safe we should live forever. Mm -hmm. How should, what did he Because you never finished. Well, so he says, uh, I, I've been very near to the gates of death, but not in the real man, the imagination that liveth forever. So... What does it mean to say the imagination lives forever? Well, somehow it can't mean that Blake thinks that after he dies. I mean, it may mean this, but it can't mean it in some literal sense. It can't mean it in the sun looks like a, a disc like a sixpence, or like a guinea sense, but it must mean something like that the sense of imaginative power never diminishes, or he's claiming that for himself it never diminishes, that even the encroachingness of death doesn't in any way diminish the power of the imagination to affirm. And that's a power over death. It's not that the imagination is denying death, it's not that the imagination is somehow imagining that death isn't real, it's imagining in the teeth of death it's it's continuing to to affirm <coughs> and what the political oppression against that would be is what Nicole is saying which is that if instead you're you're encouraged to think life is pretty crappy now and that's um, uh, hard but the reward is that in the future you get to live forever and have an easy life and have a life of leisure in heaven. That's what Blake thinks is evil. The idea that there's a future reward rather than a present reward. I don't know where this like idea comes from, but about like heaven being memory, like heaven and hell being like a person's memory after they die. So like if they've been a really good person, then heaven is like they will be remembered for all eternity as a force of, of yeah. Heaven. So like the spirit of this person. Yeah. And then if you're an evil person like Hitler, then you're remembered. I said to say Hitler. <laughs> and then you're gonna be you're gonna live for all eternity in infinity basically. Yeah. Like when people say your name, they spit. Yeah. And they. Yeah. Yeah. They swear. Yeah. And because your spirit is in hell, and that's well, that was the notion of heaven and hell. So if you're in heaven after you die, people like you and continue your ideas and yeah. continue your philosophy. Yeah. And so that way you become eternal. But if people 
don't like you because you're evil, they just like divorce you, and then you're not gonna like your philosophies won't yeah. continue. Yeah, but if you don't know that when you die, does it matter? I think it matters. Okay. Yeah, because I'm not gonna be here for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. But it might be that, I mean, a version of that that I've heard is essentially that at the moment of your death, if you know that um, you've you've made a positive difference, you'll die happy. And if you know that you have been evil and that you're hated, you'll die miserably. Luther actually says that. He says that's what that all hell, purgatory, and heaven are are the experience of hope, hopelessness, and despair at the moment of your death. That's all you need. Because you're so scared. Yeah. Yeah, hope, fear, or despair, I guess, are the three things. But, so there's this Wallace Stevens poem, which, which for me captures a lot of this, which is a poem called Waving a Jaja, which is well can someone get it up? By Wallace Yeah, that's it. Yeah, you wanna read it? Yeah, okay. Um Waving a Jaja. That would be waving and that would be crying. Crying and shouting and meaning farewell. Farewell in the eyes and farewell of the center, just to stand still without moving a hand. In a world without heaven to follow... So, this is the crucial stanza. In a world without heaven to follow... The stops would be endings, more poignant than partings, profounder. And that would be saying farewell, repeating farewell. So, if you knew there was no heaven, then stops would be more poignant than endings, profounder. That is, that if there weren't something that was going to happen afterwards that will lend extreme poignancy to what happens in this world. Okay, keep reading. Um, just to be there and just to be whole. To be one singular self, to despise the, the being that yielded so little, acquired so little, too little to care, to turn to the ever-jubilant weather, to say. One's cup and never to say a word, or to sleep, or just to lie there still, just to be there, just to be beheld. That would be bidding farewell, be bidding farewell. One likes to practice the thing, they practice, enough for heaven, ever jubilant. What is there here but weather? What spirit have I except it comes from the sun? Thank you. So the idea in this poem, which is an amazing one, the more you know it, is that if, if life is not practice for heaven, but life is the only time these things will happen, then they, each of these things, to behold someone, to be beheld by them, each of these things becomes profounder and more poignant and ultimately more jubilant than whatever it is that you're being promised in heaven. So it makes this life valuable. And that is the center of, of the romantic idea, that thinking about the now 
rather than seeing it as something that will pass as you head towards a more important future, but seeing the now as the only thing that's important. That's what they're, that's how they're thinking. And that it can mean that loss is real loss. These aren't necessarily happy thoughts, but it does mean that the imagination for Blake is the imagination that's possessed by the human being who can imagine her own death, let's say, and who therefore is, goes all the deeper into, it, into the presentness of life because of that. So that's where energy comes from. Another way of describing reason or the ratio or the rationality that he's against would be to say that it's something which makes all of time uniform and so doesn't privilege experience in any way because there's nothing about the present moment which is different from every other moment. All time, all moments would be the same, all moments would be uniform, and there isn't this sense of focused intensity that the encroachment of death elicits. And that focused intensity, that's for like what energy is and what the imagination is. And if you say reason is the bound of that, maybe a way of understanding that is to say that reason knows that we'll die and therefore does put a boundary on energy so it doesn't dissipate into some rational idea of a uniform futurity but is focused imaginatively on the present moment. So in other words, we know, reason tells us we're going to die so that we can appreciate this life more. Yeah. Okay. When used right. Okay. So YOLO is actually good. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so... Anyhow, by way of orientation then, in the book of Job, Milton's Messiah is called Satan, and what that means then is that the Messiah from Paradise Lost, that is the figure who defeats Satan in the battle in heaven, which is, the, which is a story, we get that account in Paradise Lost in, in, in book six of Paradise, in book five of Paradise Lost, in book six, we get the account of war in heaven and the defeat of the rebel angels by Messiah. So that Messiah is, Satan is good, the rebel angels are good. They are the original, Satan is the original archangel. The Messiah who defeats him is called Satan in the book of Job. So the Satan in the book of Job is not the Satan of Paradise Lost. The Satan of the book of Job is the Messiah of Paradise Lost. The Satan in the book of Job is simply oppressive, and therefore Messiah is a figure, Paradise Lost Messiah is a figure of oppression. That's how to do the algebra here. Make sense? So, for this history has been adopted by both parties, which is interesting. It's a little bit like the Americans, if you ever watch that show, which is that they... Both sides agree about their positions, 
and the God in Paradise Lost and the Messiah in Paradise Lost and Satan in the book of Job think that you should be puritanical and that energy should be curbed. And they agree that they think that. And the Satan of Paradise Lost and the Jehovah of Blake's vision think that energy shouldn't be curbed. So they agree with what they're fighting about. They agree that they disagree about energy and that one side is pro-energy and the other side is pro-the-curbing of energy. So this history has been adopted by both parties. It, appear, it indeed appeared to reason as if desire was cast out, but the devil's account, so it, it seems according to standard Christianity, that desire was cast out of heaven, that the devil was cast into hell. But the devil's account is that the Messiah fell and formed a heaven of what he stole from the abyss. So that's an amazing line. And the idea is that the Christian heaven is the place into which the Messiah of Paradise Lost, that is the oppressive ruler, fell when defeated by the energetic hero, the, the Milton Satan, the true Jehovah. So using those, maybe it's easier to orient ourselves with those words, that Jehovah defeated, quote, Messiah, unquote. And Messiah fell and formed heaven of what he had stolen from the abyss so what does abyss mean there? Well, it means something like what we confront when we confront death. And the idea of the abyss is that it's not some limit beyond which we don't go. It's the limitless. So it's seeing death not as a limitation, but as that which has no limits, the limitless. And it's the limitlessness, the abyssal limitlessness of death, which is what fills the mind with energy, or the contemplation of which is the source of human energy. So Heidegger, I've mentioned him before, has the phrase being towards death, that is focusing your being on the fact that you will die. So just that phrase, being towards death, might be suggestive. Not being as in just waiting around and trying to postpone and defer death, which Heidegger thinks most people do and that it's wrong. But being towards death is a kind of affirmation of the seriousness of being alive, the depth of being alive trying to postpone death, Heidegger has the phrase they being for that, T-H-E-Y hyphen being. That's the being of those who are, who are always trying to postpone death, keep away from it, not think about it, deny it, and what they're, what they're missing is the tremendousness of what it means to be a human being, which is to know that we'll die. Yeah? Uh, a little confused about that one. Uh, it appeared to reason that the desire is cast out, but the devil's account of the Messiah 
fell and formed a heaven. Yeah. So which Messiah is it there? Is the it bad Messiah. Milton's Messiah. Yeah. So his reading of Paradise Lost is that Milton doesn't, that what the story Milton is really telling, um, maybe not fully aware that he's telling it, but the story that he's really telling is that there's a war in heaven that the that the loyal angels and God and the Messiah lost that war and they then were cast out and they fell into a region where they created the Christian heaven and did it by taking a little bit out of the abyss and which they stole um, and what they stole from the abyss is a sense of death is scary and out of that, they, you know, you should think of this as being like the angel who, who comes with the bright key and lets all the children out of their coffins of black in, in the chimney sweeper, in the innocent version of the chimney sweeper. So they get a little bit of the scariness of death, and out of that, they create the idea of heaven as a place where you can just live pleasantly forever. And they do this in order to compensate for the fact that they've lost in the battle with true poetic genius or the true which which is the true source of all thought and of all energy so they having lost a true poetic genius invent this artificial disneyland heaven and that artificial disneyland heaven is their claim to have won when in fact they have lost. Yeah. Just the reason it's a little tricky for me is like in Milton, Satan fell and formed a heaven. So yeah. it's weird because you could see it as if the devil's account is this, then the devil would call Satan Messiah. And Satan fell and formed a heaven. It doesn't have the right. Wait, so. Sorry, so which say... Yeah, okay, so let's say that... Let's use different terms. Let's say Jehovah is who Blake is for. And he's called Satan in Paradise Lost. Simplifying a little bit. But the figure of Jehovah is not God and is not uh, Messiah. The figure of Jehovah is the, this, the transcendent... Um, presence of the abyss, let's say. So the good guy for Blake. Right. And Messiah is the bad guy for Blake. Right. And, and, impar- reason, and reason is bad and energy is good. Right, yeah. So reason says desire was cast out, but the devil's account. Yeah, which is the good guy devil, not the bad the guy. Good, yeah, the good, the, the good account is that the Messiah, but who's calling him the Messiah in this case? Oh, he's just, he's willing to allow for that terminology. So that's the problem, is that is the terminology is confusing, but essentially the devil is saying, that is Jehovah, is saying, you want to use that terminology, fine. Because it's not because the idea would be something like, if you are looking for salvation from outside of yourself, from a Messiah, because the Messiah is the, is the, is the Savior, if you're looking for salvation from outside of yourself, like the angel who unlocks the coffins of black, 
then you are thinking in terms, in the wrong terms of standard Christianity. And if you believe there's a Messiah, rather than that you yourself are the Messiah, which is something Blake might accept, but if you believe there is a Messiah outside of yourself, then that's, you're already misled. And so to talk of an external Messiah is to talk of the, of the God in Paradise Lost, or of the Son of God in Paradise Lost. So he's, he's willing to use that word, Messiah, because he doesn't think there is such a thing outside of the individual human being. Yeah? Does Blake care about suffering that's happened in the past? Like, after the chimney sweepers die, does it matter that they suffered anymore, or...? Well, it's worth reading the Proverbs of Hell to, um, see, to see what he thinks about that. But the, the quick answer is... The quick answer is no. And the reason that the answer is no is that too much is then... Is that, the, is that suffering that's not occurring is used to justify bad behavior in the present by those who have power. So if you say something like, this terrible thing happened, and therefore we need to take revenge, or we need to punish those who did this terrible thing, you know, Blake's really not about punishment. And one of the things that you'll get in the prophetic books, he's, part of the problem is that he, it, he's really subtle, and he's psychologically really subtle. But one idea in Blake, one really important idea, a subtlety that's there all the time, is that it's very, very hard not to turn some impulse towards spiritual power and good and what Blake would regard as as, as the right thing to do into something bad by way of being vindictive towards those who are against you. So if you if you if Satan were to hurt Christ in Paradise Lost, for example, or Satan in Paradise Lost doing what he does to Adam and Eve, that for Blake is a bad thing to do. And the fact that Satan is right turns into a problem when Satan asserts his own rightness. Wait, so what God does in the Bible to Adam and Eve is not good? Or wait, is that different from what No, it's what Satan does in the Bible to Adam and Eve, which is to get them to eat the apple. Uh... So you can see there, there are a couple of interpretations of what Satan is doing, and one interpretation is that he's doing it because he loves them and wants them to be on his side. And to the extent that that's what he's doing, it's okay. To the extent that what he's doing is taking revenge against God, it's not okay. Uh, okay. And what keeps happening in Blake is that the revolutionaries become, and all these prophetic books are books of revolution, the revolutionaries become dictatorial once they have power. They, or they become authoritarian once they have power. And they seek to take revenge against those who were oppressing them. And that's not what Blake wants. But it's really, really hard to 
defeat the other side without quite without defeating it more than you need to. And so what happens the, the heroic the real heroic figure in Blake, the one to as you read him, the one to have most hope for is Orc. But one thing that happens, we won't do this in this class because we won't have time, but one thing that happens if you read Blake's prophetic books is that the reason there are a multitude of, of these mythological figures like Yorizin and Orc and Los is that they keep kind of cloning their own rebels once they get some power. So they, they are rebels who come into power. And as soon as they come into power, Blake has, doesn't have anything left to admire in them because they have power. And then they clone another rebel. And that kind of, of production, reproduc- reproduction of rebels against victorious power, that for Blake is a really incessant and important action or, or occurrence which keeps happening because those in power are unable to sustain their, the spirit of rebellion, which is their greatness. Story of today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, um, America and the Book of Urizen for Wednesday. And then. Milton over the weekend, and next week will be Milton, and then on to the easy stuff, to the superficially easy stuff. The um, sorry, Blake's epic Milton, his epic cult Milton. That's the easy stuff. Sorry, no, no, no. Once we're done with Blake, things will seem superficially easier. Okay. You got your paper back? Yeah. Yeah. And Ariel, you got your paperback? Oh, yeah. Good. I'm seeing that. I'm like, that's a lot.